Good evening, and we are here tonight for session 46 of Systematic Theology. We're um, continuing through the Reformed understanding of what happens when God applies redemption to his elect. When God applies redemption to someone that he elected in eternity past, he grants solely by his grace the benefits of salvation to that person. But there's an order in which God applies these benefits, and that order is what we've been looking at. It's the ordo salutis, that fancy Latin phrase that we've mentioned a lot, the ordo salutis, and that just means the order of salvation. God applies some of these benefits at the same time when we're first saved, but there's still a logical order to those benefits. Once again, in your notes, you'll see the order of salvation that we've been using. Now, in past sessions, we looked at election in eternity past. Then we began to look at the logical order of benefits that God graciously grants in time, at, at the time that he applies redemption to an elect person. So we have the new birth or regeneration, along with the effectual call that has to logically come before faith in Jesus Christ and repentance unto life. Until God, the Holy Spirit, causes us to be born again, saving faith and repentance is impossible without that. It has to come first. Our hearts had to be remade first before anything else in the order of salvation can be applied. Now, we've covered the portion in the Ordo Salutis that you see in your notes as steps 1a and 1b. We're continuing with steps 2a and 2b, repentance and faith. And I introduce the definition of saving faith as knowledge, assent, and trust, and how knowledge, assent, and trust cannot happen without the new birth happening first. We saw how saving faith, it's a gift from God and not something that's generated by the flesh. God uses the gospel as means to produce saving faith, and he works directly in the elect to produce faith in the gospel. And then we looked at false faith and how it differs from saving faith. And we need also to steer a correct course between the two terms we ran into last time, nomism and antinomianism, where nomism is a a false scheme of salvation where we think that we can just be justified by our own efforts in law-keeping. And then antinomianism, well, that's just an assertion that, well, you know what, we're justified by faith alone, so God's law is simply irrelevant to us once we're saved. That would make Christianity a morality-free religion. Those are two ditches on the side of the road that we're trying to avoid. Nomism and antinomianism. The idea that the law is everything, we can justify ourselves through law-keeping. Antinomianism, that the law just doesn't matter at all once you're saved. Both of those are false. They're two ditches on either side of the road of truth that we have to thread our way through. Now tonight we're going to take a closer look Once again, at the three elements of saving faith, knowledge, assent, and trust, three elements of saving faith. Now, it might seem obvious that in order to have faith, we need to have faith in something. We have to know what that something is. But what seems obvious, you know, it has competition out there in the world. One of those competing notions that we find out there in the world is this competing notion of what's called implicit faith, implicit faith. The Roman Catholic viewpoint introduces the concept of implicit faith. In Roman Catholic theology, implicit faith is when someone fully assents to 
whatever doctrines the church might teach, even when you don't know what those doctrines are. Implicit faith, as Rome sees it, basically amounts to, I'm ignorant about what the church teaches, and I don't need to know what the church teaches, because whatever it is, I have faith it's correct. Catholics believe that implicit faith is true and valid faith. You know, many years ago, I was talking to a Roman Catholic who admitted that he never actually read or studied the Bible. And his defense was that, you know what, the, the Roman Catholic Church, we have clergy that spend our whole lives doing this, so I don't have to do it. He basically outsourced his faith. His idea was that he didn't know much about what the church taught, but you know what, whatever it might be, he had faith that it was true. Protestants reject the idea of implicit faith since it asks us to embrace something that is an absurdity, that we can have faith in an unknown thing. Now, it's interesting, this false doctrine of implicit faith in an unknown teaching, it reminds me of what the Apostle Paul ran into when he went to Athens. I'm going to read from Acts chapter 17, verses 22 and 23. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. What therefore you worship as unknown. The Athenians, in this case, combined idolatry with implicit faith. They didn't know what they were worshiping, but they worshiped this unknown God anyway. A Roman joke said it was easier to find a God in Athens than to find a man which tells you how many altars there were to pagan gods. And after building altars to all the gods they could think of, they dedicated one to whatever unknown god they might have missed. Paul then uses this as a launching pad to bring them to true knowledge, knowledge based on divine revelation, rather than the implicit faith they had in their idols. And I think we can actually see implicit faith as perhaps a form of idolatry itself. Instead of worshiping the true God who has graciously given revelation of himself, we transfer that worship to whoever is saying, just trust me and have implicit faith in whatever doctrines I teach, even if you don't know what they are. The Roman Catholic doctrine of implicit faith ends up meaning, in a very practical sense, that the faith of many in the church for salvation is in the church rather than in Christ himself. When we reject the Roman Catholic doctrine of implicit faith, this doesn't mean that we fully understand all the things that God has revealed. You know, the Bible's a big book. We're going to be busy for our entire Christian lives studying and understanding the scriptures, and we'll grow in understanding. Also, we also know that there are things that God has not revealed to us, and we trust and follow God even though not all things are revealed. You know, Deuteronomy chapter 29 Verse 29, which I'll read here in a moment, it has a basic principle to follow that will keep us out of a lot of trouble when it comes to what God has revealed and what he hasn't revealed. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. 
The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us. There are many things that God has sovereignly chosen not to reveal to us. We're not to launch into vain speculation on what God has kept secret. But the good news is that what God has revealed in Scripture, that belongs to us and our children forever. God revealed true doctrine in Scripture in order that we study it and base our faith on that knowledge. We don't earn points by being deliberately ignorant and outsourcing our faith to others. Here's what John Calvin wrote about the Roman Catholic doctrine of implicit faith. He wrote, They have fabricated the fiction of implicit faith. Bedecking the grossest ignorance with this term, they ruinously delude poor, miserable folk. Furthermore, to state truly and frankly the real fact of the matter, this fiction not only buries but utterly destroys true faith. Is this what believing means to understand nothing, provided only that you submit your feeling obediently to the church? Faith rests not on ignorance, but on knowledge. The false doctrine of implicit faith only excuses deliberate ignorance. And this deliberate ignorance is excused by people thinking that their deliberate ignorance is actually something pious, something good, a form of faith. But what this really is, well, it's what we call blind faith. Faith requires an object. The object of faith has to be propositional statements. What are propositional statements? Propositional statements are statements that make a claim to being truthful. They're words that make a truth claim. For faith to exist, we have to know what we are supposed to believe. One example from scripture that we can go to next is in the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Gospel of John, chapter 6. In this passage, Jesus had spoken statements of truth, but they were words that were difficult for many to accept. And this was a moment that sifted out false disciples from true disciples. I'll read from John chapter 6. I'll read verses 66 to 69. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus spoke words of eternal life, words of truth. Many could not accept them, but Peter spoke for the disciples in saying that they had heard these words of truth from Christ and believed those words. And further, they believed and came to know that Jesus is the Messiah. John mirrors these words later on in 1 John, the letter of 1 John, chapter 4, verse 16, where he mirrors those words, where he says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. In the Gospel of John, John records Peter's confession of faith as, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In his letter of 1 John, John echoes this. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Know, believe. Belief 
must be accompanied by knowledge. Knowledge is necessary for faith. John wrote that we have come to know and to believe. The faith of the disciples, the faith that John is speaking of, is not what Roman Catholics speak of as implicit faith. Saving faith is inseparable from the word of God, the scriptures. The gospel in the scriptures is the power of God unto salvation. Whether someone reads the scriptures or the gospel is told to a person from the scriptures. Once again, we can go to the gospel of John to see this link between the knowledge revealed to us in the scriptures and saving faith. In John chapter 20, as John approaches the end of his gospel, he tells the reader the purpose of his book. And I'll read from John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John is saying he could have written much more, but his purpose is served in what he did write. What was that purpose? But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The written revelation of the gospel is meant to be the content of our faith. That content is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The result of knowing the gospel, assenting to this knowledge, in other words, agreeing with this knowledge of the gospel, confessing that it is true, and then trusting in it, that it's true for me, the result is you may have life in his name. Our faith has content to it. We don't just have implicit faith in the Roman church where we don't think it's important to know the content of the faith. I think that John, when he wrote the purpose of his gospel, may have had two groups of people in mind. First, the unconverted could read it and could see the truth statements of the gospel and the evidence for its truth and believe. Second, those who are already converted can read the gospel of John and reinforce the knowledge of the gospel and increase their faith. Because saving faith is based on propositional statements, in other words, words that make a claim to truth, our faith is objective and not subjective. It's not just feelings. It's not, our faith doesn't depend on working up an emotional feeling and then trusting in that feeling. We don't have faith in faith. You know, in that Disney movie, Peter Pan, Peter tells Wendy, John, and Michael that they could fly with just four ingredients, happy thoughts, then faith, trust, and pixie dust. Saving faith isn't happy thoughts, and faith in faith, just having faith in faith itself. Saving faith is based on the revelation of scripture. It's based on objective truth and facts from real history. It's not happy thoughts and wishful thinking, but saving faith is knowledge, assent or agreement with that knowledge, and trust of Christ's death and resurrection and ascension and reign, and that we have life in his name. Francis Turretin wrote this about faith being founded on knowledge. Faith and the word are related. Therefore, where faith is, there knowledge ought to be because the word cannot be believed or received unless 
it be known. For as there is no desire of, so neither is there assent to what is unknown. You can't agree with an unknown thing. That's what he's saying. The fact that saving faith is founded on revealed knowledge of the gospel means that the teaching of the true gospel is so important. Paul wrote to Timothy about the importance of the ministry of the knowledge of the gospel in the book of 1 Timothy. And I'll read from 1 Timothy chapter 6. It comes at the end of the letter, verses 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Paul's letter to Timothy is meant to capture Timothy's special attention at this point. First, it's the end of the letter. This is the final command Paul gives to Timothy in this particular letter. This thought, this command, is what he wants to leave with Timothy as a matter of particular importance. And then verse 20 also begins with the words, O Timothy, with the O being an emphatic way of personal address. Gets your attention. If someone were to say to me, oh, Steve, this is what I want you to do, that oh would signal me that something really important was about, to, was about to come. I need to pay attention. Now the important command comes. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. One commentator stated that this phrase, guard the deposit, referred to the process where someone would give a valuable, perhaps money, to someone to safeguard. This person was then to guard the deposit. He had a duty to safeguard it because the person who gave it to him expected it back at some point. And the phrase assumes two things. First, the valuable thing belonged to the owner, not to the person guarding it. And second, the person guarding the valuable had an obligation of faithfulness. This deposit that was being entrusted to Timothy's care was the pure gospel. Paul wasn't asking Timothy to add to that deposit. The, the apostles, they'd already brought the message of the gospel that was the foundation of the church. Paul had entrusted this to Timothy. And now Timothy was to guard it, to remain faithful to that message. The original apostles did not pass along their office to successors upon their passing. The Roman Catholic Church claims there's still unwritten tradition passed down uh, somewhere in their hierarchy to the apostles, and they, they gave it verbally. They didn't write it down, but you know what? Today they can still bind your conscience to it. If you were with us for the systematic theology sessions on the sufficiency of Scripture, you know that all we need for salvation is written in the Scriptures. Once the apostles passed, the treasure of the gospel was passed on to those in ordinary Christian ministry and ordinary Christian teaching by means of the inspired scripture. We don't add to or subtract from that today. But as Timothy was told by Paul to guard what was entrusted to him, we guard what's been entrusted to us. Guarding the truth involves accurately proclaiming the truth then, as Paul told Timothy, guarding against those who contradict the truth with irreverent babble. Now, the knowledge that we need to know, assent to, in other words, agree to, and trust for salvation 
is the gospel. When Paul reminded the Corinthians of the gospel, he called this the truth of first importance. The truth of first importance. And I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 5. To show the fact that the gospel is grounded in the historical fact of Christ dying for our sins according to the scriptures, being buried, being raised in resurrection on the third day, and that his resurrection was proven by his appearances to the apostles. And I'll read from 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What's of first importance? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Peter also proclaimed the absolute necessity of the gospel when he announced that there is no other way of salvation other than Jesus. I'll read from Acts chapter 4, verses 8 to 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter proclaimed that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The proclaiming of the gospel brings knowledge to those who hear. If a person hears, then assents to the gospel, agrees with that knowledge, and then trusts in the gospel, confessing that this is not only true in general, but it's true for me. I trust in this for salvation. Then they have saving faith. This is the power of the gospel, the means that God uses to bring his elect to saving faith. I'll read next from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where it shows the power of the gospel. Why the gospel has that power. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The announcement of the gospel is the knowledge that is necessary as the first element of saving faith. You've got to have that first. The knowledge of the gospel has to be preached to you. Saving faith isn't some 
strong but sort of general emotional feeling that we produce with the object of that feeling being that, you know, everything's going to be okay in the end somehow. It's not Peter Pan with happy thoughts and faith and trust and pixie dust. The object of saving faith is the message delivered by the apostles and found in scripture, the announcement of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel reveals that the righteousness of God or the free gift from God of righteous legal standing before God is given to those who believe. Now, the next phrase that it mentions here is kind of mysterious, where it says, from faith for faith, or as other translations phrase it, from faith to faith. And there have been many opinions on what this phrase means, going all the way back to the early church fathers. And, you know, I don't want to go down a rabbit trail tonight on this phrase, but I think the most likely explanation of it is that from faith for faith is a rhetorical device or a use of language to emphasize the importance of faith. It's kind of like repeating a word twice for emphasis. It's emphasizing the importance of faith in the gospel as the sole means of this gift from God of righteous legal standing before him. In other words, faith and nothing but faith is the means to have this righteous standing. We can't bring our own works to gain righteous standing and salvation. In the book of Acts, chapter 26, which is where we'll be next, Acts 26, we can see an example of someone who was confronted with saving knowledge, the gospel, but would go no further to the other elements of saving faith, assent, and trust. As we come to Acts 26, we see Paul making his defense before King Agrippa. He had told his history of his strict life as a Pharisee, his persecution of Christians, his conversion when he heard the voice of Christ, then his ministry of declaring the gospel. Paul then testified of the gospel to Agrippa, stating that Christ would suffer, then rise from the dead, and that all this was previously declared by God through the prophets, the very prophets that Agrippa said he believed. Paul then stated that Christ would bring light to both Jews and Gentiles. Then, in Acts chapter 26, verses 27 and 28, we see the reaction of King Agrippa. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Agrippa was an expert in the Jewish religion, and he knew the prophets. Agrippa knew or should have known that all that Jesus did fulfilled what the prophets said would occur. Paul now presses him. Agrippa now has to declare where he stands. It's got to come down on one side or the other at this moment. Agrippa could have said to Festus, who was with him, that, yes, what Paul is saying of Jesus only mirrors what the prophets foretold. And Paul's case is very solid. But that doesn't happen. Instead, Agrippa responds with a, a sad irony, or saying the opposite of his mind for rhetorical effect. How he responds is a little difficult to translate from the Greek, but it literally says, in a little, you are persuading me to be a Christian. Now, we can tell that Agrippa was speaking ironically because of Paul's response after this in verse 29. And Paul said, 
whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Why didn't Agrippa assent to the gospel? Agrippa had, I'm sure, his internal reasons. The price for declaring himself a Christian was just too high. He didn't want to make a declaration that he believed the truth in front of a Roman governor. Agrippa gives his excuse that it's unreasonable for someone to believe after a short time of preaching. Whatever Agrippa's internal reasons he might have had, the foundational reason he did not assent to the proclaimed gospel was that Agrippa was not chosen from before the foundation of the world to be among Christ's sheep. For an elect person, when the external universal call of the gospel is combined with the internal call from the Holy Spirit, conversion will irresistibly follow because the heart has been changed by the new birth. Agrippa had the privilege of hearing the gospel from Paul himself, but the outcome is sad for Agrippa, and this is the last we hear of him. So now we'll move on from the necessary element of knowledge and saving faith to the necessary element of assent to the gospel, to agree with the gospel, to agree with that knowledge. It is critical to saving faith that we not only have knowledge of what the gospel proclaims as good news, but that we assent to it, that we agree with it. I'll read next from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, where John the Baptist tells us of the importance of assent to what God has revealed in Christ. In this passage, John the Baptist is responding to John's disciples when they tell him that people are moving on from the ministry of John the Baptist and going over to Jesus. John begins his response by reminding them that he never claimed to be the Christ and that he was commissioned to go before the Christ. As we come to the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 31. John the Baptist was emphasizing that his ministry, his own ministry, must diminish because it had served its purpose with the words, he must increase, but I must decrease. And I'll read now from John 3, verses 31 to 33. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. In verse 31, John the Baptist said what should be obvious to his listeners. You, 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 know, you can speak with, a, with authority on matters that you know about. If you've spent time somewhere and have witnessed how things work in that place, and you've been immersed in the culture of that place, then you can speak with authority on what you have personally witnessed about that place. I've been there. I live there. I can tell you all about it. John the Baptist said that he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Like all the rest of the human race, the origin of John the Baptist is of the earth. So he's not the Messiah. Christ, the person of the Son, came down from heaven, so he is above all and superior to John the Baptist. 
Then John says this, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. The Son of God has come from heaven. So he speaks with authority on heavenly things because he is witness to heavenly things. John goes on to say that despite the authority of Christ to speak on heavenly things, no one receives his testimony. John doesn't literally mean no one. Compared with those who didn't receive Jesus' testimony, the number who did receive were fewer. Verse 33 tells us that there were some who did receive Jesus' testimony on heavenly things. What John says about these people who accepted Jesus' testimony is what I want to focus on and what is connected to this element of saving faith, the element of assent, the element of agreement. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Sets his seal. In ancient times, putting a seal on a document attested to its authenticity. It was a certification that the document was authentic. When someone assents to the gospel, agreeing that it's true, he sets his own seal to it, so to speak. He's agreeing that the message of the gospel is authentic. He is acknowledging, as verse 33 says, that God is true. And this fits with how the scripture uses this word seal in another place in the Gospel of John. In chapter 6, verse 27. And I'll read from that passage where Jesus is speaking to the crowd who were fed in the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. God the Father has set his seal on Christ. God the Father has certified his Son as the one who can give eternal life. This divine seal is the certification. That's the one that really matters. If people don't believe in Christ, that doesn't change the truth. God the Father has set his own seal on Christ. When we assent to the gospel, when we set our own seal on God being true, we're only acknowledging and accepting what is already true. When we speak of assent as being an element of saving faith, this is what we mean. We are acknowledging and confessing the truthfulness of the gospel what the Son has said about himself, and what the Father has certified about Christ. In assenting to the gospel, we set our own seal to these things. John the Baptist said there were many who did not accept the testimony of the one who came from heaven, but there are some who do accept and set their seal of acknowledgement to the gospel. Both groups heard the gospel. Both groups heard knowledge of heavenly things. One group rejected the knowledge and did not benefit from it. The other group accepted it, placed their seal of acknowledgement on the message and showed that God had granted them saving faith. We've looked at two elements of saving faith, knowledge, then assent to that knowledge of the gospel. And now we come to the third element of saving faith and that is trust, trust. The theologian Gerhardus Voss defined trust as resting in the testimony of another 
for anything significant that affects our lives. That's kind of a good definition for trust in general. Resting in the testimony of another for anything significant that affects our lives. In this case, in saving faith, we place our trust in the truth of the gospel. And we rest in that truth. The gospel is not only true in general, but it is true for me personally. And I rest on that. When we trust someone's testimony or statement of, about something significant to us, we're involved in that statement of truth. We're putting our eggs in a basket and trusting that the basket won't break. Gerhardus Voss, once again, he said of trust that the level of our investment in what we trust depends on how much is at stake for us. In the case of the gospel, our trust in it is a matter of life and death a matter of our eternal state before God. Our trust in Christ is more than an emotional feeling. Our emotions, they waver from day to day, and we can't trust our internal emotions. But our trust in Christ is trust in someone outside ourselves to save us. Here's a quote from John Calvin on trust in the gospel. Here indeed is the chief hinge on which faith turns, that we do not regard the promises of mercy that God offers as true only outside ourselves, but not at all in us. Rather, that we make them ours by inwardly embracing them. An inward embrace of the truth of the gospel. Full trust. It's true for me. Trust goes beyond just assent to the truth of the gospel. Trust means that we believe the gospel is true and also true for me. Trust means we rely on someone. We have confidence in the person we trust. On days when the devil reminds me of my sin, I can and must react by reminding myself of the gospel. I must agree with it and then once again trust that Christ has saved me from my sin. I'm going to turn next to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. And where we'll see the difference that faith as trust makes in the life of a Christian. As we go into Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is speaking of the mystery of the gospel that he's been charged with preaching. Now the reason that it's called a mystery is not because it's a mystery now. Paul is here, he's preaching the gospel boldly and plainly. But the plan of God to include believing Gentiles as fellow heirs of the promises, along with believing Jews, that hadn't been understood completely before the gospel. It had been hinted at and prophesied in the Old Testament, but it was somewhat mysterious. Paul is saying this plan is now plainly revealed. And now we come to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. This was according to to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Boldness and access with confidence. These verses tell us several things about our present state as believers. Paul uses three important words to emphasize our state as believers. And those words are boldness, access, confidence. 
says that through our faith in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence. By faith in Christ, we have access. What do we have access to? Paul gives us an answer one chapter back in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, where he writes, and he came near, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Access in one spirit to the Father. Through Christ, both believing Jews and believing Gentiles have access in one spirit to the Father. In ancient times, access to the king was very limited. Even in our time, how, much do, how many of us get access to the President of the United States? It's pretty limited. One had to have special status to have that kind of access in ancient times to the king. Now those who trust in Christ have access. And that access is through Christ. In Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, reinforce the truth of this access granted in Christ by faith when it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So what do we have access to by faith? We have access to God the Father. We have access into this state of grace in which we stand and all that that grace includes. Now we go back to Ephesians 3, verses 11 and 12. Not only do we have access to the Father in this state of grace that we now enjoy, but we have boldness in this access, boldness. The Greek word translated boldness can also mean courage. This is the omnipotent and most holy God we're approaching. How can we possibly approach the most holy God at all, much less with boldness and courage? Only because in Christ, and in Christ alone, we have that privilege of access. Charles Hodge expressed it like this when he said that because of Christ's work, we have free and unrestricted access to God as children to a father. We come with the assurance of being accepted because our confidence does not rest on our own merit, but on the infinite merit of an infinite Savior. It is in him that we have this liberty. We have this free access to God. We believers, not any particular class, a priesthood among Christians to whom alone access is permitted, but all believers without any priestly intervention other than that of one great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. This passage has three powerful words, boldness, access, and confidence. I want to concentrate now on that third word, confidence. This word confidence is linked to what we're looking into tonight, the element of trust in saving faith. Confidence is a state of certainty and trust where we rely on someone. If I trust someone, truly trust them, I'm confident that I can rely on them. 
Once again, I'll read the passage with those three powerful words related to saving faith in Jesus Christ back in Ephesians 3, verses 11 and 12. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Through our faith in Christ, we have boldness and access to God and his grace. And we have this with confidence or trust. Trust is that element of saving faith that makes it our own. Knowledge of the good news of the gospel is necessary and comes through the scriptures and the preaching of the scriptures. Assent is agreement with the good news of the gospel. Trust is the element where we believe that the gospel is not only true in general, but it's true for me. And I rely on Christ and his finished work for forgiveness of sins and right standing with God. That trust, that confident reliance on Christ, it flavors or characterizes this boldness and this access. Once again, I'll quote Charles Hodge and what this confidence or trust means. We have this free access to God with full confidence of acceptance through faith in Christ. It is the discovery of the dignity of his person, confidence in the efficacy of his blood, and assurance of his love, all of which are included more or less consciously in faith, that enables us to joyfully to draw near to God. This is the great question which every sinner needs to have answered. How may I come to God with the assurance of acceptance? The answer given by the apostle and confirmed by the experience of the saints of all ages is by faith in Jesus Christ. It is because men rely on some other means of access, either bringing some worthless bribe in their hands or trusting to some other mediator, priestly or saintly, that so many fail who seek to enter God's presence. This finishes the section of the Ordo Salutis on saving faith, even though we could, you know, we could spend a lot of time, you know, much longer on the subject of faith. But we always need to remember the essential truth that forgiveness of sins and right standing with God come by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. When we speak of faith as being the instrument of justification, we don't mean that faith is a work of our own, where we can you know, pat ourselves on the back a little bit for the good work that we've done. Instead, faith is the outstretched open hand of the beggar, with nothing in that open hand he can bring to receive the gift from the rich man. Faith has three elements, knowledge, assent, and trust. These elements of faith are impossible without the new birth, regeneration happening first. Now, when we meet together again, we'll look at the step in the Ordo Salutis called repentance unto life, repentance unto life. But to wrap up, I want to quote the lyrics of the hymn, The Solid Rock. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. 
In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood when all around my soul gives way. He then is all my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand.